Oh, yay. Oh, yay. Oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable the United States Court of Appeals for the 12th Circuit are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Please be seated. Welcome everyone. My name is Chris Coleman. I'm the president of the Wild Moo Court Board. Um, just before we get started with the main action of the day with our arguments, I'd just like to acknowledge our uh, wonderful student-run organization. Uh, the members of the Moot Court Board worked tirelessly to put this event on and uh, to get everyone here to have a good problem and to have a great experience. Um, so thank you to the Moot Court Board. Next, I'd like to introduce the author of our final problem, Hayden Little, to give a brief explanation of what we'll be hearing today. Thank you, Chris, and good afternoon. My name is Hayden Little, and I wrote the problem that will be argued today. Before I give a brief summary of the facts, I just wanted to take a moment to thank Professors Joe Four and Josh Bowers for the um, generosity of their time in helping me get this problem ready. So a big thank you to them. And now for a summary of the problem that will be argued. This is a criminal case called United States versus Jason McCabe. Jason McCabe, the criminal defendant, was convicted of first-degree murder of an officer or employee of the United States and possession of a controlled substance with intent to distribute. He is now appealing to the Court of Appeals for the 12th Circuit. There are two issues presented in this appeal. The first, a constitutional issue, and the second issue is a statutory issue. But before discussing the legal issues, I'll state the underlying facts relevant to those legal issues. A reliable confidential informant notified the Drug Enforcement Agency that Jason McCabe, the criminal defendant, and Simone Smith, who is Jason McCabe's then-girlfriend, were selling methamphetamine throughout Lyle City Metroplex. The DEA, acting on this tip, instructed agent Daniel Craig to set up a buy from McCabe and Smith. According to the government, agent Craig spoke to a third party who arranged a sale. That same third party instructed Agent Craig to be present at the corner of 5th and Main Street in Lyle City on September 3rd to participate in the sale. A few blocks away from that location, Agent Daniel Craig was found dead sometime later with a single gunshot wound to the head. Agent Craig had one gram of methamphetamine on his person. The DEA obtained a search warrant for a house owned by McCabe and Smith located a few miles away from the site of the sale. Upon entry around 6.15 p.m. on September 4th, that's one day after the arranged buy, agents found McCabe and Smith inside, along with approximately 100 grams of powder methamphetamine, which is a federal crime. McCabe and Smith were charged with possession of a controlled substance with intent to distribute. 
they were taken into custody and were subsequently indicted by the grand jury. At this point, neither Smith nor McCabe had been charged or indicted for the murder of Agent Craig because there was really nothing yet tying them to that murder aside from proximity and time and location. About a week later, Simone Smith, that's the girlfriend, alerted the government that she had information regarding the death of DEA agent Daniel Craig and that she would cooperate in exchange for leniency. Smith claimed that McCabe was the one who had shot Agent Craig. Smith claims that McCabe told her that he shot Craig after selling him methamphetamine because he suspected that Craig was an undercover agent. Smith also provided the government with a transaction log which showed a sale completed to Marco on September 3rd, 2021. Marco was the name being used by Agent Craig for his undercover work. Smith agreed to offer this testimony at McCabe's trial and in exchange, the government agreed to dismiss the indictment against Smith and charge her instead with a different crime, using a communications facility to commit a drug trafficking offense. This is significant because that crime exposes a criminal defendant to much less time in prison than possession with intent to distribute. While possessing 50 grams or more of methamphetamine with an intent to distribute carries a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years and a statutory maximum sentence of life in prison, Simone Smith's new charge has no mandatory minimum and a statutory maximum of just four years. As for defendant McCabe, a superseding indictment with an added count of first degree murder of an officer or employee of the United States was returned against him. So to summarize, Jason McCabe and Simone Smith were co-defendants facing a very serious charge. In hope of leniency from the government, Simone Smith implicated McCabe in another crime, and the government then dropped her charges and charged her with a crime that is punished much less harshly. And now I'll talk to you about the legal issues. The first legal issue in this case involves the Confrontation Clause. That clause is in the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution and provides that, quote, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to be confronted with the witnesses against him. The Supreme Court has held in cases such as Davis versus Alaska, decided in 1974, and Delaware versus Van Arsdal, decided in 1986, that criminal defendants have a right under the Confrontation Clause to probe the bias of government witnesses by cross-examining them about their bias at trial. This right, however, is subject to, in the words of Van Arsdal, the wide latitude to impose reasonable limits based on concern about prejudice, confusion of the issues, and marginally relevant interrogation. At trial, Jason McCabe wanted to cross-examine Simone Smith about her deal with the government. Specifically, he wanted to elicit four things from Simone Smith during cross-examination. The first of those is that he wanted to inform the jury that Smith's original charge carried a mandatory minimum sentence of 10 years, while her new charge has no mandatory minimum. The second is that McCabe wanted to inform the jury that Smith's original charge carried a maximum penalty of life without parole, while her superseding charge 
carried a maximum penalty of four years in prison. The third is that McCabe wanted to elicit testimony comparing the sentencing guideline, guidelines ranges for Simone's first offense versus the sentencing guideline ranges for Simone's newly charged offense. And the last thing that McCabe wanted to elicit on cross-examination is testimony about what penalty Simone Smith, the girlfriend, subjectively believed that she would have received had she not offered to testify against McCabe. So again, those four things are the difference in the mandatory minimum sentences, the difference in the statutory maximum sentences, the sentencing guidelines ranges for each offense, and lastly, Simone Smith's subjective belief about which sentence she would, what sentence she would ultimately receive had she been charged with the first crime. The district court ruled that the defendant, Jason McCabe, could not elicit these four details at trial for two main reasons. The first was that discussion of the sentencing guidelines had potential to turn into a mini trial, as the guidelines are, as some judges have put it, quite Byzantine. It could also invite competing positions of each side regarding adjustments for cooperation, mitigating role adjustments, and others. The second reason the trial judge ruled to prohibit this cross-examination is that it would expose the jury to the potential penalties that their verdict could impose. Exposing the jury to the potential consequences of their verdict is a practice that has traditionally been disfavored. Though the trial judge excluded questioning regarding the specific sentences, the judge offered three accommodations. First, the judge allowed defendant McCabe to ask Smith whether she faced a significant penalty prior to cooperating, and second, the judge allowed McCabe to ask Smith whether the potential sentence she faced was ultimately reduced. Third, the judge instructed the jury that it should view the testimony of Smith with caution and great care because of these benefits. Even with these accommodations, McCabe was convicted on both counts. And now I'll move to the second legal issue, which has to do with restitution, specifically the Mandatory Victim Restitution Act, also known as the MVRA. The MVRA requires restitution be awarded for certain crimes, among those first-degree murder. Section B4 of the MVRA provides that restitution must be ordered to, quote, reimburse the victim for lost income and necessary child care transportation, and other expenses occurred during participation in the investigation or prosecution of the offense or attendance at proceedings related to the offense. Agent Daniel Craig was not at the trial because he was deceased, but his mother was, and another provision of the MVRA provides that when a victim is deceased, another family member can assume their rights. And so, Pursuant to this provision, Daniel Craig's mother sought to receive reimbursement for her travel expenses and lost income during the trial. The defendant objected to this request, but the district court ruled that the request was proper. And so that is the second legal issue presented, is whether Daniel Craig um, transferred his, his right to receive reimbursement to his mother and whether that included her right to be reimbursed for her expenses. And uh, 
the exact notice, the exact wording of the notice of appeal is located in your program. So I hope that, I'm sorry I went on so long, but I think that this is a better experience for everyone if you're able to follow along with the arguments. So I appreciate you bearing with me if you didn't fall asleep. So thank you. I'll go ahead and uh, call these proceedings to order. Uh, we're here on a case entitled Jason McCabe versus the United States. It's criminal file number 2404473. Um, and uh, whoever is going to argue the Crawford issue on behalf of the appellants, uh, you may please step forward. May it please the court, my name is Sophia Evans, counsel for the appellant, Jason McCabe. Your honors, as detailed in our brief, my co-counsel, Mr. Riley Seegers and I, respectfully submit that the district court's holding was incorrect and should be reversed by this court. In addressing this first issue today, appellant maintains that the district court violated Mr. McCabe's constitutional right to confrontation by impermissibly limiting the scope of his cross-examination of the witness. Our argument today is twofold. First, the cross-examination sought by Mr. McCabe would have been permitted at common law and is thus protected by the Constitution today. And second, the exclusion of this testimony did not allow the jury to appraise the bias of Ms. Smith in the instant case. As to our first argument, despite Appley's contention, Van Arstel's holding does not establish a test by which to determine when a defendant's constitutional right to confrontation has been violated. To the extent that the dicta in Van Arsdell may be construed to establish such a test based on reasonableness, it has been superseded by the court's reasoning and Crawford. Indeed, the court's ruling- I don't ruling follow that argument, Counselor, because I don't, Crawford, I think, dealt with a completely different issue, didn't it, about testimony, what, what you know, unavailability testimony, and I mean, obviously won't rehash Crawford, Van Arsdale seems to be essentially, and Davis versus Alaska seem essentially on point. And not only that, but there don't seem to be any court of appeals cases that have seen it your way. Am I wrong about that? You're not wrong, Your Honor, but we believe that that's because the current circuits feel bound by prior precedent. The circuit split that we're addressing today arose before Crawford was decided in 2004, and thus circuits already had their own tests. Given that this is a matter of first impression for the 12th Circuit. But wouldn't you expect some judge, some court of appeals judge, I mean, they all have huge egos, as we all know, and they would be spouting off about why this test is wrong, why Crawford governs, why the Supreme Court got it wrong, why they're smarter than the Supreme Court. I mean, we don't see any of that, do we? No, Your Honor, but there have been precious few cases that have addressed this issue since Crawford, and we don't think that, you know, that that should bar this court from finding that Crawford applies today. Although you're correct, Your Honor, that Crawford implicated a case with an absent witness, it still was only one application of the Confrontation Clause's core right, the right to cross-examination. Well, as you look at Crawford, you look at, at, at its progeny, and then you look at the, the paucity of case law that, that is addressing this particular issue, and you combine that with the fact that 
this is not an unusual factual issue. If you look at the rulings that were made by this United States District Judge, they seem very commonplace and they are uh, oftentimes uh, made throughout the country. And while there's an underlying split about what does Van Arsdale mean, nobody has embraced the Crawford thing. So why is everybody wrong? Your Honor, we merely think that they're not recognizing Crawford's broad application of its reasoning. Though you're correct that its holding is not applicable in the instant case, the underlying rationale and the broad and sweeping language throughout Crawford signified an important analytical shift in the court's confrontation clause jurisprudence. Indeed, the court meant to recognize that they wished to return to the underlying purpose that was afforded to defendants at common law and saying that the confrontation clause protects the same today. But at common law, the penalties that were available uh, were well known to every member of the jury, right? Because everything was different. All felonies were capital cases, uh, and uh, they had no mandatory minimum. So everybody understood the judge could do whatever they wanted. If you come forward out of the common law and you go through the Jacksonian period, you find out there are sentencing juries in many states, mostly in the South. But in any event, juries actually sentenced, right? And, and so, I mean, you're asking us to kind of take a rubric and then apply it to a system where we have divided the law from the facts in such a way that the district judge gets to do the sentencing. And, you know, if we allow this testimony to come in, it's going to be difficult for the judge to make sure that the verdict is not unduly influenced by the sentencing considerations. And this has been the common way that people have approached it. Why, why is it wrong? I take your point, Your Honor. There are very many differences between common law's regime and our current legal regime. However, Crawford does not require that we completely subvert our current regime today. Rather, it merely dictates that defendants be afforded the same rights under the Confrontation Clause that they were afforded at common law. Counsel, my colleague has pointed out that things were different, including I, I take it that bias would have excluded someone as a witness at common law, and that's not the case here. Are you asking that that should be the case here? You're correct, Your Honor, that at common law, interested witnesses were barred from testifying, being deemed per se untrustworthy. We're not asking for that here. Rather, we're arguing that this fact that they were excluded at common law does not undercut the fact that the defendant had the preliminary right to cross-examine them for even the slightest degree of bias. May I, may I follow up on that then? So in point of fact, at trial, um, this topic was discussed and was discussed with the witness. Um, your contention is that it should have been discussed more fully. So if this, is a, if this is a witness who would have ex been excluded entirely at common law, but you say you should have full reign to, to interrogate them, what limits exist under your view, under the confrontation clause, um, for, for your discretion as counsel to ask questions about bias? For example, Ms. Smith and your client had a romantic relationship, is every, which could also create bias. Is every salacious detail of that relationship or its end also fair game because you have free reign now to ask any question you want? What's the limiting principle? Your Honor, we believe that the limiting principle should be questions that show additional probative value of the witness's interest. So to reference your example of the romantic relationship that existed between Ms. Smith and the defendant here, that would not show her interest. Indeed, interest was defined as where a witness stood to gain or lose by the event of the suit or by their testimony. Here what we're referring to is a legal gain, that Ms. Smith received a reduced sentence in exchange for her testimony here. 
she undoubtedly would have been qualified as an interested witness at common law. And thus, in the wake of Crawford, the trial judge's appropriate role is to utilize their discretion on cross-examination, where it would not provide any additional probative value of a witness's interest. However, where they determined that particular testimony related to a witness's interest could bear on the witness's credibility, but nonetheless exclude such as in the instant case, they exceed that discretion. Though trial judges may act as gatekeepers to determine- Isn't, I, I read the common law a little bit differently, and I guess maybe I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but Dane says that um, informers could testify if a pardon, if they were to receive a pardon, but not if they were to get part of the penalty, meaning a monetary reward. All of the, all of the interested witness things at common law seem to be tied to pecuniary awards, not or pecuniary interests, not for what, for example, a pardon, which seems to me would be more analogous in this case, right? A reduced sentence. You're, You're not we- getting money. You're correct, Your Honor, that this is not a pecuniary interest here. However, it is still an interest insofar as Ms. Smith stood to gain by virtue of her testimony and a legal gain. That is interest also But the question in common law was whether you stood to gain from the outcome, right, of the proceeding. She doesn't gain from the outcome. Whether this, whether McCabe gets convicted or not, she gets the same thing, right? That's true. Because it's a charge bargain, so all she did was get a reduced charge. So I don't know what the interest is. She just had to tell the truth. Your Honor, that's assuming that what she has to say is, in fact, the truth. She has an incentive here to please the government because she's not yet well, been sentenced under the new isn't charge. Isn't that true with every case, in every case where there's a cooperating witness? And the deal with the charge bargain, it's very different uh, than the usual and customary plea bargain. It says, we want to hear your testimony first, and then we'll decide. And, you know, we try those cases every single day. Now, this is a charge bargain case. She's already received the benefit of this bargain. Um, if she perjures herself and the government wishes to pursue a perjury charge, they can. But in the end, um, this deal is struck. And so the question is no longer, is she going to get, you know, I mean, the most she can get is four years in this case, right? And so at this point, the deal is done, right? That's correct, Your Honor. She still has incentive, though, to cooperate with the government here to offer the best testimony she possibly can in the hopes of receiving on the minimum end of that sentence as much as, as little as zero. Did but, anybody ever try and argue with the district judge that perhaps there were other alternatives? I mean, the, the bottom line is, if I look at the four things that you want, they're all very specific, and they all basically say any probative evidence uh, we can take up. And you have today expressed a broader view, or a narrower view of probative evidence than I imagined when I read uh, the briefing and the, and the underlying rulings of the judge. But nobody seems to have ever argued to the judge something like, you know, um, if you limited yourself to what were her expectations, you could have asked a single question that says, your expectation was before this that you were looking at a decade or more in prison and today you're looking at only four years, yes or no. They answer that question. It's, it's really, it's, it's done, it's over. But nobody ever seems to have asked the judge to kind of narrow the, 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 the harm so that, that as the judge exor, you know, exercises his latitude, that, that, that the judge is able to make that decision without um, uh, being all or nothing. Your Honor, we agree that you don't have to adopt Crawford's more narrow analysis in deciding this case. Even without implicating Crawford, 
All circuits agree that the relevant inquiry as to whether a defendant unconstitutionally limited a defendant's right to confrontation is whether the jury had sufficient information to appraise the witness's bias. Here, that was not the case. Because appraising necessarily entails the ability to measure the extent of bias, the magnitude of bias, they don't have that here. They have court generalizations. One who stands to gain a reduction of 50 years or more off their sentence arguably has more motive to fabricate testimony than one who stands to gain a reduction of merely one or two years. And indeed, in this case, Ms. Smith's cooperation meant that she went from facing a sentence with a maximum of life in prison without parole. And why does the, there are several cases, I think, um, that specifically say the maximum penalty is not relevant. Um, maybe the minimum is, I don't know, but why is the maximum? That's correct, Your Honor. I believe you're referencing Ninth Circuit's Larson case in this. But in that case, it's important to recognize that other facts, other ones of those three other alternative pieces of testimony Mr. McCabe sought to elicit were present to the jury so that they could make an appraisal. Your Honors, you do not have to decide that all four elements of testimony that Mr. McCabe sought to introduce are necessary here for the jury to appraise his bias, the witness's bias in this case, merely that the district court went too far in limiting his scope of cross-examination. So you think, I'm sorry, do you get a new trial if we agree that even one of the things should have been allowed? Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. And moreover, Appley's argument that Mr. McCabe cannot show prejudice in the instant case necessarily fails. This point has already been conceded. In page 14 of the record, on footnote 7, the government concedes this argument, stating that if there was a constitutional violation, it was not harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. This means that the well, government... when they use the word prejudice, they don't, mean, they don't mean that kind of prejudice, right? They're talking about prejudice as part of the Van Arsdale prong one test, right? Your Honor, that... Whether there was a significant effect on the jury's ability to a, whatever that language is, right? Your Honor, that's not what Van Arsdale holds. Van Arsdale does establish a two-step test, but it merely states that step one is determining whether there was a constitutional violation, and step two is showing that it was more than harmless. That's true, but the circuit courts have generally described the first as the prejudice prong, and so if the government adopts the same analysis that circuit courts have done, they aren't really arguing the kind of prejudice that you're arguing here right now, particularly the part that's been excluded from the problem that's before us. Your Honor, we think that that is the same prejudice here. The government agrees that the jury could have come to a different conclusion regarding Ms. Smith's credibility, but for the limitation imposed by the district court. Thus, limiting it here, it was just completely inappropriate. Mr. McCabe merely asks to exercise his right to confrontation to present to the jury facts pertaining to Ms. Smith's knowledge and frame of mind in making her decision to testify against him, not experts to be presented to discuss intricacies of sentencing guidelines. Thank you, Your Honors. For the foregoing reasons, appellant prays you re reverse the district court's ruling. Thank you. Who will argue the first issue? May I proceed? You may. May it please the court, Ethan Tracy on behalf of the United States, we are appellee here today. I'm going to be handling the Confrontation Clause issue. My co-counsel, Mr. Dev Runjan, is going to be addressing Ms. Marsha Craig's entitlement to restitution in this case. 
and we are asking this court to affirm the district court below on both. The district court's reasonable limitations on the scope of the appellant's cross-examination in this case were fully consistent with the confrontation clause under the Supreme Court's binding precedent in Delaware v. Van Arsdale. I'd like to focus on two major points today. First, I'd like to give this court an affirmative reason for holding for the government's position in this case, and that is that the appellant has failed to overcome either of Van Arsdale's two hurdles. The appellant under Van Arsdale must show prejudice. They must show that the district court acted outside of the scope of its discretion, and here the appellant has failed to satisfy either. Second, I would like to address our colleague's argument about Crawford and explain why Van Arsdale is the controlling precedent in this case, and in doing so, I would like to address their fundamental misunderstanding about what common law tradition is applicable and relevant for this issue. But I'd like to start with Van Arsdale's prejudice inquiry. And under Van Arsdale, prejudice means a particular thing. It looks to whether or not a reasonable jury may have had a significantly different impression of a witness's credibility if the appellant had been permitted to ask all the questions they wanted to. And I would like to clarify a point right here about the difference between that inquiry and the harmless error analysis, because they are not the same. And one of the principal differences- Isn't the problem here I mean, I, I see your point, um, but even under that test, whatever it is, um, we have Chandler, Larson, we have the Fifth Circuit case. There are several cases that seem to go against you. And ultimately, it seems to me that there is a difference between a charge bargain case and a case where the government is promising to give a 5K substantial assistance letter. In a charge bargain case, you are dropping charges and we know exactly what the sentence would have been, at least we know what the minimum would have been. It's not the case where the government just comes in and says, hey, this person cooperated, we don't know what the sentence is gonna be. Why doesn't this case just fit within that paradigm? Well, Your Honor, I think two answers to that question. The first is in, in the facts of this case, we don't know what the defendant's, or rather the witness's sentence would actually have been. It was neither known or knowable. It was at least going to be six years. We don't know what it may have been before that, uh, rather in addition to that. The witness was never sentenced in this case. As the panel pointed out before, we gave, the government gave the witness her benefit before she ever testified. But I also would like to address, your, um, you're raising the, the cases that uh, nominally held against us. That's Larson in the Ninth Circuit, Chandler in the Third, and Cooks I mean, in the Fifth. Nominally is, <laughs> they, they held against your position, I think, pretty clearly, don't you think? Your Honor, we would argue that those are all distinguishable on the facts in that they were applications of the magnitude principle. In, that, in those cases, there was no characterization on the record of the potential gravity of the benefit that the witness may have received. And that's very different from the situation here. Here, this district court complied with the magnitude principle. But, the, but for example, I can't remember which one, one of the cases involves a guideline range. You know, the, the guideline range was 21 to 27, then later it's, or it was gonna be 97 to 121, then it's 21 to 27, okay? So the error in that case, it seems to me, the courts of the error was not being able to mention the numbers. I mean, it wasn't just the magnitude or the language it, it, it doesn't imply to me that significant would have been enough. What it suggests to me is that you had to put the numbers out there. So the analogy in this case would be 
the zero and the four and the 10 and the life. In other words, you bookend it just like the guidelines would have in that, I can't remember, Chandler, one of those cases. I don't see why that isn't just exactly the case here. Well, Your Honor, here there was a very real danger of unfair prejudice by providing the jury with those exact numbers. And under Van Arsdale, when that's the case, a district court is not prohibited from crafting another remedy. But I thought the concern about prejudice was always where the defendant and the witness faced the exact same charges, and you might be, the jury could infer from the numbers from the witness what the defendant's sentence might be. Here, the defendant is charged with murder, so, and the witness was not ever charged with murder, so their sentences wouldn't be the same, would they? Well, Your Honor, they certainly wouldn't be the same under murder. As you pointed out, the witness was not charged with murder. However, the other two charges at issue were the same. The witness was charged with possession with intent to distribute 100 grams of methamphetamines, and the defendant, Mr. McCabe, was also charged with possession with the intent to distribute 100 grams of methamphetamines. And the government's position about this is the fact that the defendant was also charged with murder in no way diminishes the government's right to have a fair shot at convicting the defendant of possession with intent to distribute 100 grams of methamphetamines. And it is from that that the jury nullification issue flows. And that's precisely the reason that the district court here used a term significant as opposed to the exact sentences under that no, charge. Is there really a nullification worry about on the, the most serious charge, I assume, is the murder? And the jury has no idea what the murder sentence is going to be, although they could probably infer that it's going to be pretty serious. And I don't know why there would be a nullification problem there. Well, Your Honor, there's no way to know in advance whether or not a jury is going to convict under either charge. And again, we, we're, our position is that the government is, does not have in any way a diminished interest in convicting someone for possession with intent to distribute just because they could plausibly be charged with additional criminal activity. And in fact, here, the jury convicted on both. Counsel, may I turn to your Crawford question, your Crawford contention? In your view, what did Crawford do to this line of cases? Did it do nothing to Van Arsdale and other cases in its line? Yes, Your Honor, that is our view. And there are a number of things that I would like to say about this, but I think I'll start by giving this court just a few quick top line reasons why that's the case. Crawford does not discuss, reference, or cite to Van Arsdale, Delaware, or excuse me, Davis v. Alaska, or Olden v. Kentucky anywhere in its opinion. It does not discuss them. No justice asked about any of those cases during the oral arguments, and neither of the parties cited to any of those cases in any of their briefs. The Supreme Court, on the other hand, has, however, cited Van Arsdale six times since Crawford was decided, nowhere suggesting that Van Arsdale had been drawn into doubt by Crawford or any other authority for that matter. And as the panel pointed out, every single federal circuit court in this country has continued to apply Van Arsdale as good law even after Crawford was decided. That's including the D.C. Circuit and the Federal Circuit. And several of those courts did so in a federal habeas posture in which they considered Van Arsdale to be clearly established federal law. But nobody has actually put it, put it to a circuit court, have they? We don't have any indication that somebody has made this argument and it's been rejected. I mean, yes, Van Arsdale is going along on a pair on this track, which is fine, but until somebody, like in this case, actually raises the issue, we don't know, right? I mean, Crawford did say 
did kind of reinvigorate the Sixth Amendment with common law principles, right? I mean, why shouldn't we take that kind of general principle and apply it? Absolutely, Your Honor. So two responses to that. And the first is that even if we accept our colleagues' argument about Crawford as being correct, we're not conceding that, but just if we assume an arguendo for a moment, the actual applicable common law tradition here is far less favorable for the appellant's position because it represents a nearly unqualified trial court discretion to limit a scope of cross-examination that's already taking place. But as to your point, Your Honor, about the, the fact that no other circuit courts have considered it, I think that's because it's just not a particularly plausible claim and no litigants have raised it. And I don't think that that's a good reason for this court to create a circuit split against an otherwise unanimous federal judiciary on this topic. But I do want to return to the concepts that are at issue between these two cases because I believe they're important with respect to the common law traditions that are, at, that are applicable. As a hearsay case, Crawford dealt with ex parte proceedings in which a defendant may have evidence offered against them without any opportunity to cross-examine or face their witness at all. And the 1603 trial of Sir Walter Raleigh that our colleagues point to in their brief is an excellent example of that sort of situation. But that doesn't matter and is not applicable when there's already a witness on the witness stand. When there's already a witness on the stand, the common law tradition is nearly unqualified and absolute discretion on the part of the trial court to control the cross-examination. And this court can see that if it were to follow back the Van Arsdale line of precedence back through Davis and then Alford in 1931 into the 19th century, where it would find several things. The first is it would find several Supreme Court decisions that held that trial court discretion over cross-examination is not reviewable on a writ of error. And it would find citations to state Supreme Court decisions that stood for the proposition that trial courts had nearly unlimited discretion in this area. And those decisions, in turn, were premised on English common law cases like Rex v. Pitcher that held for the same. And our colleagues' citations to the common law commentaries that they cite to, Blackstone, Wigmore, and Hale, don't change any of that. Those commentaries stand for the proposition that the common law abrogated the civil law practice of allowing ex parte evidence against a defendant. And that represents a situation where a jury is denied the sort of full information that a jury gets when they can see a witness testifying as opposed to trying to read from a deposition or an affidavit. And when they can but see- But isn't implied in that is that I get some substance to my cross-examination. I mean, that's why we're here, right? Your Honor, I, I mean, believe- I get a cross-examination, okay? You get to ask two questions and sit down. I mean, you know, that's not cross-examination. And so we I just, it seems to me we just get back to this question of can I use, I mean, can I ask the witness what they expect their sentence is going to be? And plenty of cases have said, yes, you can ask that question because the jury's entitled to know what the witness thinks they're gonna get. And I don't know why that would be denied here. I mean, it doesn't seem like it would hurt your case, for example, to give that information. Well, several answers, Your Honor. We, we do contend that it would hurt our case because of the risk of jury nullification. And in fact, the Supreme Court has recognized that in, in the federal system, at least, informing juries of sentencing information is inherently prejudicial to both parties because it's unclear what effect that can have. But I also believe that there's a wide gulf 
between the type of essential denial of all cross-examination, which Fensterer refers to as an emasculation of the right, from what happened here. Well, but there's still an abuse of discretion that we're looking at at some level, right? I mean, there's broad latitude. That doesn't mean it's at the sole discretion of the judge to do willy-nilly whatever the judge wants to do, right? And if you look at it, um, what was allowed here was just significant sentence. That's, that's it. And that seems to come out of the Eighth Circuit case, Wally or Whaley, however you say that. Um, and I look at that case and I'd say, you know, that was an odd case all the way around. The penalty originally was small. The reduction, while it was a large percentage reduction, you know, you're talking moving within this four-year window. It's not a big deal. And the court simply said that they were not persuaded that the specific sentence uh, would have left the jury any more enlightened than they were. Now, isn't that somehow different than a deal where I'm looking at 10 years to life or I'm looking at like zero to four? Well, I Your Honor, that, we... I think the Eighth Circuit is just odd. Don't they are, judge? yes, I know. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that, Your Honor. Uh, no, we believe that, that there is certainly a difference between those two things, but the analysis is not if there's a difference. The analysis is if there would be a significantly different impression that would result. And that's just the analysis under the prejudice inquiry. We also have to deal with the trial court's broad discretion when there's a risk of jury nullification or confusion of the issues like that presented here. Well, how big a risk is there really in this particular case uh, when there's a charge bargain? Well, Your Honor, we believe that, that the risk was significant and that that's pretty well established by all of the federal circuits that have handled this issue. They all seem to be concerned, as well as the Supreme Court, with informing a jury about potential sentencing. But I do want to return to the prejudice aspect of this briefly with the time that I have remaining, and that is the government's position here is that in the context, when you look at what the jury actually heard about this witness's potential bias, no significantly different impression would have resulted. This was a criminal murder trial in which a federal agent had been killed. The witness was a cooperating witness. She was testifying against her then boyfriend, her benefit. Why isn't it then, it just seems a little odd to me that you would concede though that if, if they establish a violation, it was, it was not harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Wait, oh, apologies, right. Your Honor. I mean, so, if, it's, if, if it would meet the Chapman kind of prejudice, then it would seem odd for me to look at that and not peek behind the curtain and say, well, look, if this is not harmless beyond a reasonable doubt, then I've got to, what, I've got to send it back. Your Honor, I will run out of time while I answer this question. May I have the leave of the you court may. to finish up? So, Your Honor, I think there's a few important points to note there. We did concede the harmless error analysis for purposes of this appeal because the government's interest here is for the 12th Circuit to create the right rule with respect to the Confrontation Clause issue. But there is a crucial difference between the harmless error analysis and the prejudice inquiry under Van Arsdale, and that is the party that bears the burden. Under the harmless error analysis, the government would have the burden. But under the prejudice analysis, the appellant has the burden. They had that burden today under both prejudice and the trial court discretion portion of this. They failed to satisfy either of those. And for that reason, we are asking this court to affirm. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Tracy. Um, the uh, argument on the restitution issue from the appellant.
Good afternoon, Your Honors, and may it please the court, my name is Riley Seegers, representing the appellant, Mr. Jason McCabe, in today's second issue. The district court ordered Mr. McCabe to pay restitution for lost wages and travel expenses, despite the fact that the victim suffered no such expenses in this case. This was legal error. The MVRA only authorizes courts to grant restitution to reimburse the victim for lost wages and travel expenses incurred while attending trial. In granting restitution to Ms. Craig, a non-victim, third party, restitution for her own lost wages and travel expenses, the district court contravened the MVRA's text, structure, and purpose. As such, this court should reverse the judgment of the court below and vacate its order of restitution. Now, I'd like to briefly just discuss how the MVRA actually operates. In requiring that defendants make restitution to victims, subsection A1 of the act lays out its primary right, namely a victim's right to receive an order of restitution. But restitution is not some amorphous term that is loosely pegged to a defendant's need, or to a victim's need. Instead, it has a specific statutory definition that is laid out in subsection B, where the MVRA says clearly what an order of restitution shall include. As such, subsection B does not create standalone or freestanding rights. It merely qualifies and defines the primary right established do in we subsection. Know, do we, we know from A1 that the victim's estate there's something called the victim's estate, and there will be a recovery associated, perhaps, with the victim's estate, right? Yes, Your Honor. Um, why is it not the case, so, and also, for example, funeral expenses are not the victim's expenses, right? Would you agree with that? I would agree in that I mean, the, the victim, victim is not paying for those expenses themselves. Well, yes. paying the ultimate. <laughs> price, but, but, but they can't enter into a contract, <laughs> right? So they're dead. So there's somebody else in the family that's going to enter into that contract, and yet it's still recoverable. It would either be a representative of the state or a family member. Yes, Your Honor. Right. That's correct. Uh, and I think the important point here is but one. But don't we know that in a state, for example, an estate, an estate's representative, representative can recover like administrative fees, right? When they're probating an estate, I mean, doesn't the use of the word estate imply that whoever the representative is of the estate may be able to recover something more than just what the victim incurred? I, I would disagree. I think the relevance of the estate language in subsection A1 is that if there is no court-appointed representative, the court still needs to know who to, what name to put in the payee line. And so if there's no court-appointed representative, the check needs to be made out to the estate. But importantly, not all decedents have probated estates. And I think that's really the key of subsection A2 here. This was a consideration made by Congress that occasionally there are certain classes of victims who cannot enforce their own rights. The representative's role is to enforce the right of the victim. But this assumption of rights language does not create a new basis of liability on the defendant itself. 
And, and I think we can see this by, for example, the, the specific language of subsection B, and specifically B4, ties the relevant expenses and costs that will be used to calculate restitution to the victim's specific factual circumstances. And here, as the government has, the government does not argue that Ms. Craig is a victim, and indeed they've waived that argument. So the only relevant expenses incurred by the victim are, are non-existent. And, and I think one of the important things to remember as well is that it was Congress's express purpose to make sure with the MVRA that victims well, are compensated. What about the argument that you're assuming the victim's right and what the right was was the right to this type of reimbursement, right? So I'm getting the right. I'm not getting the exact amount that the victim would get. So, Your Honor, I, I would disagree with that. I think the relevant right is the right to receive an order of restitution as restitution is calculated under subsection B. And under subsection B, all restitution is calculated in reference to the factual circumstance of the victim. I well, think wouldn't, wouldn't the language of the statute read the assignment of the claim then as opposed to the assignment of the right? The right seems to be broader to me than the mere underlying claim. Your Honor, I think there are, there are a couple rights involved here. One is the only substantive right, which is the right to receive the order of restitution. There are a few procedural rights, such as the right to challenge, uh, to challenge if there's a dispute the amount of restitution. But I would argue that there is only one substantive right that the text of the MVRA actually establishes. And that is the right to, if we look at the preliminary language of subsection B, it talks about an order of restitution. And then if you look at the specific language of B4, it talks about an order of restitution that, quote, reimburses the victim. This language establishes that the amount of restitution is that which is sufficient to reimburse the victim for the victim's costs. And the victim here had no costs. Counsel, given that we're dealing here with a traditionally equitable remedy and the statute seems to operate on numerous levels regardless of how you read it, I'm wondering if, if you can tell me exactly what you want to say here. So on the one hand, as my colleague has pointed out, there's a specific provision for uh, uh, damages relating to funeral costs, which would not exist if the victim were alive. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, travel expenses for the victim. So this isn't exactly the victim's, you know, the victim's estate stepping into the victim's shoes, but it seems like, if anything, it's more than that. And you seem to be saying it's less than that somehow, and I, I can't understand why however we're going to read it, why mm -hmm. that would be the, the way. Well, first, Your Honor, I, I would argue that this is not actually the, the equivalent of equitable restitution. Restitution at common law typically was seen as a disgorgement of, prof, disgorge, disgorgement of unjust enrichment. That's not what we have here. As the Supreme Court has said in the Pasquatino line of cases, criminal restitution is more along the lines of monetary, uh, monetary damages and punitive damages as well. And so I think that equitable instinct isn't applicable here because this is not an equitable remedy. It is a compensatory remedy, yes, but it also has a little bit of, 
uh, punitive justification as well. And, and I think to the extent that an outcome could be seen as potentially inequitable, I think it's important to realize that this is still the outcome that Congress intended. As the statutory history demonstrates, both we and the appellee note in our briefs that when the statute was initially drafted, the compensatory scheme was much more open than it was when the statute was, was drafted in its final form. We see, for example, that Congress considered granting court-appointed representatives restitution by including them within the definition of victim. We also saw that there was a provision that was considered that would have allowed district judges to grant restitution to all harmed individuals, whether they were statutory victims or not, and what we note in our brief, in which Apple omits, is that Congress considered and rejected each of these provisions by deleting it from the final version of the act. But we don't know why act. they did that, do we? Your Honor, I mean, the they might have thought it was already covered. They might have thought it was duplicative. They were, I mean, you never know, do you? Well, Your Honor, to, to the extent that I, that someone might argue that it is duplicative because the assumption of rights language covers it. The assumption of rights language was added after the fact to replace that initial expansive language that was cut out. And the Supreme Court has directed lower courts that it is inappropriate to interpret a statute to enact statutory language that Congress considered and ultimately rejected. Well, is that really what's happening here? Isn't it really the, 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 the reality that that originally as drafted, it was effectively a substitute for a civil action. And it was going to be that you're giving up your right to defend yourself to a jury and the claim's gonna be made and you're gonna get awarded a million dollars worth of damages against you because Congress's original bill was so broadly drafted. They crafted it back. And what we're looking at here is just what we've got here, a claim for $8,000, which is no substitute for anything, you know? I mean, it's a small amount of money and it's directly tied. And it seems like whatever harm the Congress was worried about may have already been taken care of here. Why is that wrong? So, Your Honor, to the extent that this might be dismissed as just a small amount of money, for Mr. McCabe, there's no indication that it is just a small amount of money. One of the, uh, for example, you can't get blood from a turnip. If Mr. McCabe has no money, then to the extent, you know, a small amount of money could be a lot to a lot of these individuals. But on top of that, I think it's just important to realize that, as, as I was saying, any inequity that might result, this was Congress's decision. Congress decided it considered granting broad compensation, and at the end, it decided that no, it did, was not going to do that. Did Congress define who the victim is it does, specifically? Your Honor. It does. Mm -hmm. in, uh, sub, in subsection A, it says the victim is someone who is directly and proximately harmed, and in this case, the government does not argue that Ms. Craig is a victim. Circuits have quibbled about whether, uh, about whether family members or representatives are victims, but that's not a consideration before this court today because the government has waived that argument. And so, therefore, when we are looking at the text, which is the law, the text says the order of restitution must reimburse the victim. The victim here has no expenses to reimburse. Counsel, may I ask you about your sixth amendment argument? Yes, Your Honor. I want to make sure I'm following this. So you claim that this amount of, of restitution, the travel expenses of Mr. McCabe's mother, 
uh, ha are a fact that have to be found by a jury in order to avoid violating the Sixth Amendment? So, Your, Your Honor, our, our claim is in this argument is essentially a canon of statutory interpretation that uh, the canon of constitutional avoidance. Here, we think that based on the Supreme Court's Apprendi line of cases, in this case, imposing this specific order of restitution in the way that the court did raises a potential Sixth Amendment may issue. I just, may I just, um, so if Mr. McCabe were still alive and he could claim travel expenses under the MVRA, would that be a fact that has to be found by the jury by a reasonable doubt? Does everyone have to submit their travel expenses to the jury for judgment by reasonable doubt under your view? I think if, if we are looking at a case where the defendant has admitted no facts related to the amount, in my view, it seems, and in uh, Mr. McCabe's view, it seems that the Supreme Court's Apprendi line of cases would say that, yes, that he does How can that fun. possibly be when you look at the sentencing guidelines and all the facts we allow people, the judges, to find based on the greater weight of the evidence of, like, whether there was an obstruction of justice, whether, and those are all actually increasing the amount of time a person sits in prison, and you're telling me that, that, that this particular financial question, if not conceded, requires a jury question. And, you know, that's going to require us to bifurcate every single jury trial in America in order to take up restitution, which will not be discovered and ripe at that point in any event. I mean... Well, Your Honor, I, I, I think, importantly, uh, we need to note that the idea of a bifurcated jury, that's not uncommon to Well, it is uncommon when it's a fact that can't be established, discovered, or proven prior. I mean, these expenses weren't incurred prior to sentencing. So they've got to, I mean, how do you go about doing that? Yes, Your Honor. So I think, and, and I realize I might run out of time um, if I have leave to you respond. May. I think in first, in response to the sentencing guidelines, the Supreme Court has said that mandatory sentencing guidelines are unconstitutional if the fact that is found by the judge during sentencing would be required to increase the sentence, and that is exactly what is happening here. Now, as to the issue about practicality, I think to an extent, many of these arguments, many of these char uh, expenses and costs actually are incurred before sentencing. Here, the, the cost that was requested to be reimbursed was to attend the trial on guilt that could be sufficiently admitted before a trial on sentencing. And indeed, the record indicates that in this case, it was. Um, but for these reasons, appellant respectfully asks this court to reverse the judgment of the court below and vacate its order of restitution. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Chief. You may. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court. My name is Dev Runjan. I'm counsel for the United States. The district court below granted Ms. Marsha Craig $8,642 in restitution to compensate her for her lost income and travel expenses that she incurred while attending the trial and sentencing of her son's murder. That application of Section 3663A of the MVRA was correct. This court should affirm the district court below for two reasons. First, because the text structure and history of the MVRA all demonstrate that it is not and was not intended to be limited to providing compensations to victims of crimes for their own losses. And second, because constitutional avoidance should play no role in this court's decision whatsoever. Because given the fact of our particular case, our colleague's uh, Sixth Amendment objection is fully foreclosed by the Supreme Court's binding precedent in Muniz, Blanton, and Nuktegel. 
I'll address those two points in turn. Beginning with the interpretation of section 3663A, section A2 of that statute states that a deceased victim's family member, such as Ms. Craig, may assume the victim's rights under the section. No other part of the statute defines or explains what the rights are that section A2 refers to. But several sections of the statute lay obligations on third parties that thereby provide an entitlement to the victim. So for example, section A1 says that the district court must order the defendant to pay restitution to the victim. That creates a right in the victim to receive restitution. And similarly, section B4 says that the court's order must include compensation for lost income and travel expenses. But this section says, it says it, that you may assume, A2 says you assume the victim's rights, okay? And I, I just read that to mean you assume the victim's right to restitution, and your right to restitution would be your own expenses, right? I mean, wouldn't that be the way we would naturally look at that? I don't understand why the representative would get paid her expenses. So a few different reasons, Your Honor. And first of all, the clearest one would be that Congress could have said the word restitution in Section A2, and they instead chose a much broader word that has broader implications. And we know right, that- but your reading adds words too, right? It's kind of the victim's rights that the representative would be able to assume, essentially. I mean, you're saying, I'm put in the shoes of the victim with respect to the rights that the victim would have had had the victim been alive, I guess. Not at all, Your Honor. I, I apologize if I interrupted you. No, go ahead. Not at all, Your Honor. Our reading of the word rights is that it's simply unqualified. And because the statute does not define the term rights, as some other statutes do, what the court should do is look to other sections of the statute that create entitlement to the victim. So our colleagues have argued in their brief and in oral argument that the only section of the statute that creates rights is section A1. They say that A1 creates a right to receive restitution. The rest of the statute simply defines what the restitution is. And there are a few problems with that interpretation, but I'll start with the most obvious one. It simply has no grounding in the text of the statute. The relationship to the victim of section A1 and section B4 are in fact identical. First of all, neither of them use the word rights or purport to define it. Neither of them are framed from the victim's perspective. Neither of them directly say that the victim is entitled to anything. Rather, both of them lay an obligation on the same third party, the court. And that, that obligation happens to benefit the victim. And so in both cases, the statute creates rights. And when a vic deceased victim's family member, like Ms. Craig, assumes the victim's rights, she assumes both of those rights. Our colleagues' inter interpretation of the statute also violates two other canons of statutory construction. The first being the presumption of meaningful variation, and the second being the canon of surplusage. So for the first, as I was responding to Your Honor a minute ago, their reading of the word rights in section A2 renders it identical to the word restitution in section A1. But there are several reasons why in this particular case especially, that's a very unlikely proposition. First, simply, the word rights is just very different from the word restitution. Congress clearly knew how to allocate only restitution within the statute. They but do it in several places. I, I just, I'm not, I guess I don't really follow that argument because the way I read right in A2, or I suppose one could read right, if you just read right to say it's the right to restitution, 
In other words, what are you assuming? I am assuming what the victim's right to restitution was. That would take care of that, wouldn't it? And it really wouldn't be adding that much to the statute, right? Because the word right kind of, as you've said, both of you have said, it kind of begs the question, a right to what? What is the right? And it seems to me the natural reading of it is it's the right to rest, whatever the victim's right to restitution would have been. So, Your Honor, if the word right in Section A2 means nothing more than restitution in A1, there would be something in the text of the statute that indicated that. And at the very least, there'll be something. Well, maybe distinct. what indicates it in the statute is the, the the language itself, which says, "quote assumes the victim's right." Rights, right? End right. quote. Right. The victim's rights. And so, what did the victim have? So the victim had several rights under the statute, Your Honor. Under Section A1, they had the right to be paid restitution generally, but mm -hmm. under Section B4, they had the right to be compensated for lost income and travel expenses. And who? is the victim. I mean, you waived that. I mean, could have made an argument that the family member was a victim. That's waived. And so now we're stuck with the victim's rights. And if the victim is defined as, uh, in this case, the decedent. So this gets to the definition of what rights means and also what the transfer of rights means, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. And this is something that we address in our, in our brief with a reference to the common law. And I'll explain that point briefly with reference to a, a case that we cite. That's Minnetonka Oil from the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So that, in that case, there was an oil company that was contracted to supply oil to a brick company. And the question was, after the brick company was sold, did the oil company still have to supply them with oil? And the court said that it did. And to explain what our colleagues' interpretation of a transfer of rights would impose on that, under their interpretation, the oil company could have said, yes, you were assigned their rights under this contract, but it was only the right to receive the amount of oil that they need. And because they no longer have a brick company, they don't need any oil at all. But that would be a crazy way to interpret the transfer of rights under a contract. It's also a crazy way to interpret the transfer of rights in property law. And there's simply no way, no reason for this court to interpret the transfer of rights under this statute in that way either. Counsel, if, if we can go to the text of the statute for a bit, I appreciate your points about the common law. But here the statute, it does assign rights, um, may assume the victim's rights under this section. But B1 through 4 lay out several different types of scenarios. And B1 and B2, I think, are very intuitive with the argument you're making, that um, the, the estate or uh, uh, an administrator of the estate can step in when the victim has suffered property damage and the victim has died. B2, bodily injury, um, they can step in when the victim has died. But three and four are different. Three says you can collect uh, costs relating to the funeral, which that's completely different. That's not a scenario that exists if the victim is alive. And then four, which is after that, says you can re the, that they can reimburse the victim for lost income and necessary childcare, transportation, et cetera, uh, related to participation in the investigation or prosecution of the offense or attendance at the proceedings. Both of these seem to me to move away from a conception where the estate is stepping into the victim's shoes because the victim, the, the, the victim doesn't have funeral expenses if the victim's alive. But on the other hand, if the victim is alive, we can reimburse, the person has to, the defendant has to reimburse travel expenses. I look at this and think, these are just, these are addenda. These are situations that are not going to arise in every case. We're going to have funeral expenses if the victim's dead. We're not going to have travel expenses if the victim's dead. But those are not assignable rights because it's only the victim that the statute says 
gets uh, expenses reimbursed to travel. And there's reason for that because the victim has a particular need to be at these proceedings if the victim's living. Uh, it's, not, it's not the same to say well, your mother can come to the trial. So I would dispute, Your Honor, that Section B3 and B4 are different in kind from Section B1 and B2. We would read all four as absolutely in harmony, with the one distinction being that Section B4 is actually meant to be the broadest category. B1, 2, and 3 are all qualified grants of restitution. So they depend on a particular injury in the victim. B4 is the only one that begins with the clause, in any case. And so B4 was clearly intended by Congress, and simply by the text of the statute, to apply in every case that the MVRA comes into play whatsoever. And that leads me to another point, Your Honor, which is regarding the legislative history. I believe Your Honor asked earlier why Congress um, would have changed out some of the earlier language for the new. But if the court is interested in legislative history, it's actually quite easy to see the reason, which is that in several of the hearings, or in the, the main hearing that accompanied the enactment of the MVRA, a central concern was the number of instances when the MVRA would come into play whatsoever. And that turns on when there is an identifiable victim. That comes from section C. And for that reason, including more parties in the definition of victim would increase the number of times when someone had suffered pecuniary harm. If someone anywhere suffers pecuniary harm, the MVRA gets invoked. And as the Senate heard and as the um, administrative office of the courts testified during those hearings, that could lead to millions and millions of dollars in additional costs on American courts. And for that reason, Congress changed the language relatively minorly. They changed it so that the definition of victim does not include these parties. However, they may assume all of the rights of the victim. And as I said before, that includes the right under B4 in every case, but not, for example, the right under B1, 2, or 3, unless they satisfy the precedent conditions that exist within those sections of the statute. But that argument it seems to work against you, doesn't it? So Congress was concerned about how much restitution there would be. So you're arguing, arguing for kind of a backdoor additional restitution through B4. Absolutely not. I mean, your that's not true to whatever Congress intended if they intended for this not to be read broadly. So there's a fine distinction there, Your Honor. Congress was certainly concerned about the number of times that the court would have to undergo the procedures required by the MVRA. There's not a single mention in the hearings or committee reports about a concern about how much defendants were going to have to pay. That was outside of the concerns of Congress entirely. In fact, they even wrote the statutes that even in the case of indigent defendants, they still would be liable for every cent of harm that they caused. Now, I would like to quickly address the constitutional argument what, that our colleagues have. If you remind me again, though, I know that Casado's case goes against you. Is there any case that goes your way? A Pizzichello, Your Honor, in the Ninth Circuit goes our way. Wilcox also doesn't really go against us because Wilcox deals with Section B2, which our interpretation of the statute is, cons is consistent with the court's holding in, in Wilcox. Regarding my colleague's constitutional argument, I'll make a few quick points. First of all, they frame this as constitutional avoidance. I would say it's not really an argument for constitutional avoidance. As Your Honor pointed out, the only reading well, of the statute- put, put aside constitutional avoidance for a second because it seems to me that their argument, that any restitution or, uh, order would implicate the Sixth Amendment under their theory. Doesn't make it a bad theory, but it just, so I'm curious, most of the courts in the country, it seems to me, do view this as a criminal penalty, okay? Um, once you agree that it's a criminal penalty, why isn't the Sixth Amendment implicated? Because under Apprendi, 
just ipso facto in this situation, the jury will not have found the facts necessary to support a restitution award. So how is this not a Sixth Amendment problem? So there's a very easy answer to that, given the fact of our particular case, Your Honor, and that's because in Muniz, Blanton, and McTeagle, the Supreme Court held that there simply is no Sixth Amendment right when the penalty for an offense is petty and not serious. And the closest offense here would be from Noctegel. Noctegel in 1993 held that a $5,000 fine that was levied on someone who was convicted of driving under the influence of alcohol in a national park was not sufficient for them to have any right to a jury trial at all, even for the underlying offense. Now, $5,000 in 1993 would be over $10,000 today. There are cases in the Second, Ninth, and Eleventh Circuit that have applied this, those cases to hold that $10,000 fines are simply not sufficient for a Sixth Amendment right to be invoked. And the Supreme Court in Southern Union, which our, our colleagues lean pretty heavily on in their, in their brief, because that's the case that held that Apprendi applies to criminal fines, actually cites these cases and explicitly uses them as a limiting principle. In re responding to a But those are maximum potential penalties, and in this case, the maximum restitution is in many ways unlimited. So that's a bit of a catch-22 for our colleagues here, Your Honor, because if the court were to read the maximum penalty as unlimited, then Apprendi would not apply facially for another reason, because Apprendi applies to only cases where a court is adjusting the maximum penalty. So in that case, there would be no application of Apprendi anyway. But assuming that there is a maximum penalty here, and it's what is the maximum amount that is demanded by the, the victim's needs, there still would be no application in this case, because $8,642 is simply not enough. There are even, there's not a single case that we have found in any lower court that have held that this is an amount of money that entitles someone to a jury trial. And so the only way that this court could rule on the constitutional issue in this case would be to speculate about a different possible case with larger fines, and that would simply be an advisory opinion. For these reasons, we respectfully ask this court to affirm the district court below. Thank you. Ms. Evans, Mr. Seeger, who is going to argue? You may. Hello again, Your Honors. Just a few quick points of rebuttal. First, our friends on the other side indicate that Crawford is inapplicable because it just doesn't cite Van Arsdal. Um, the Supreme Court doesn't cite Van Arsdal anymore. Since Crawford has been passed, Van Arsdal has only been cited in four majority opinions. Three were not about the Confrontation Clause at all, and one was rejecting a Ninth Circuit interpretation of Van Arsdal in the Confrontation Clause context. Second, though, we, we don't even have to get to the Crawford issue um, to rule for our client in this situation because, um, as Your Honors indicated, this is a charge bargain case, and so reliance on cases like Wally from the Eighth Circuit are inapposite. Instead, a more relevant case from the Eighth Circuit, I apologize, is Campbell, where the court indicated that, look, Wally was about where we don't know what the actual scope of the benefit will be. In this case, there's a charge bargain. Uh, Miss Smith knew how much she was facing, and how much she wasn't facing. And, and the government has conceded that this could have altered the outcome, not only of the jury's uh, evaluation of her credibility, but of the entire trial. And second, as to the restitution argument, I think it's important to consider what is the role of the judiciary and what is the role of Congress 
It's not the role of the judiciary to say what the law should be. It has no force or will, only judgment. It's Congress's role to say what the law should be and what it shouldn't be, and Congress has done so here. It considered granting Ms. Craig exactly the relief she was looking for. It considered classifying her as a victim, as a court-appointed representative. It considered giving the judge discretion, but it decided not to. This court's role is to say what the law is and vacate the order. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. The case is well argued and well briefed. Um, I uh, want to thank you all for your uh, time here today. The arguments were helpful. We will uh, take the matter under advisement and report back to you as soon as we are done deliberating. Please be seated. I want to start out by thanking uh, all of the advocates here today. You all did a, just a marvelous job. Uh, and uh, I uh, told my daughter, who I think most of you actually know, she's a 2L here, when we were coming over here that the hardest thing I do every year is judging moot court competitions because, you know, in the real world, we decide cases on the law and the facts, and we don't judge style points, right? And when we come here, we're asked to judge people on the style points uh, as well as how well they've analyzed the law, but it's a much more difficult thing than what we do every day. So, um, and uh, you folks did not make it any easier by uh, your arguments. So that's, that's where we're at. Um, I will just start uh, by, uh, by announcing um, who, the, uh, who, who won and, and who the outstanding uh, oralist or advocate is. And then I'll give a few uh, comments and I'll call on my colleagues to do the same. Um, the, um, uh, the discussion we had was very close. And uh, we uh, made the decision that the Appalese were the prevailing parties and that, uh, Mr. Tracy, that you were uh, the outstanding oralist in the, in the case. So uh, congratulations to you and to both of you. And uh, one of the things that's a little unusual about the UVA moot court is that we judge briefs as well as the uh, oral arguments. And uh, uh, that, uh, um, I think, is really kind of a neat tr uh, tradition, and I like it very much because it allows us 
to think more deeply about uh, what everyone has done. And I also think that the sort of grueling process that you go through that involves uh, writing on three separate issues over the course of a two-year period is also truly amazing to me. Because, you know, I don't know if you realize this, but at least most of the law schools in the Midwest, if we had this type of a system, there would be no one doing moot court. <laughs> and so... And so, so uh, congratulations for enduring the marathon, you know, because I think that's a big deal just in and of itself. Um, I want to comment just shortly, briefly about the briefs. Um, uh, each of you did some very good things uh, in your briefs, and uh, uh, I'd just like to, to mention that first. And I would say that if we look at the blue brief and you look at uh, the work that was done there, uh, I really found uh, your writing style comfortable, right? And one of the things as a circuit judge that I love is when I can pick up a brief and I can read it, I can understand it, it flows naturally, and at the end of the day, it's made sense to me. I know what the arguments are, I know where everyone is, and that was um, uh, what I, I found very uh, helpful in your brief. It's a very strong brief. It's better than many briefs that I see. Um, the uh, second thing that I would just uh, note about uh, uh, the briefing is the red brief is a very strong brief as well. Um, I thought that uh, if you look at the analysis on the law, uh, was tight and uh, it held together nicely. Uh, it was uh, a little less breezy and a little more challenging for me to read, but it was still a really an outstanding brief. And it's, I mean, a, both briefs are, were excellent. And so. Well done on that. And I would just note that it's unusual when one looks at briefs to see such strong briefs with such strong oralists. And so that's a, that's a real plus for both, both sides. What I would tell you is this. Um, if you look at the bell curve of lawyers that, that uh, I see arguing in our court every day, uh, that uh, you folks are well within that bell curve, probably in the top half without any difficulty, which is an amazing thing when you look at where you're at in your career. So I think you are all just outstanding uh, oralists and that's uh, uh, really uh, worth, uh, uh, worth noting. Um, I think that uh, if I was going to have some sort of general criticism of, uh, of what was probably the decisive point for me is I think that on the um, appellant side, that you bought into Crawford in a way that was not to your uh, strongest advantage, right? At the end of the day, here's the thing. Crawford's a constitutional question. It's not directly controlling. We have uh, case law that's hanging around out there that people are still citing for some proposition. I mean, there's no indication that it's, that it's been completely undermined which makes it kind of uncomfortable ground for appellate courts. And you could have won otherwise. And I think that if you really look at it, that pounding the table on the idea that whatever this broad discretion you may have under the previous standard, if we adopt that, that, uh, that uh, we still win. Because whatever happened in this case, you take Whaley, it's easily distinguishable. Nobody else has done this uh, significant uh, thing and it doesn't fit and my goodness that if you look at the amount of difference that this charge bargain made there is plenty of room to say there's some kind of abuse of whatever discretion this is that the judge had and I think that 
in the real world, that would have been a more fertile argument because, you know, I think you got caught up in the whole law school thing where we love the Constitution, and what you don't realize is that those of us on the circuit courts love the Constitution as a document, but we hate to be deciding constitutional cases if we can avoid it because it's where the Supreme Court tends to point out that we're not very smart, and so we try to avoid that if we can. All right, so that's kind of the dance. Um, and and I, I'm not going to say a lot, anything to each of you as individuals because I will just tell you that the arguments that were made were really strong. And, and uh, I thought that the, the kind of the most astonishing thing to me was how quickly uh, you adjusted to questions that were, you know, partially misleading, sometimes mistaken and uh, difficult. I mean, I intentionally threw a couple things out that were really kind of over the top, and at each time, everybody got to where they wanted to be really quickly. The one or two times where somebody kind of made a misstep, they recognized it, each of you recognized it almost immediately, backed into where you wanted to be, got back on your argument, and man, that is a gift. I don't see that in a lot of a lot of my cases. When I'm sitting there, people start doubling down on it because they don't ever want to admit that they might have been um, on the wrong side of the nuance on that issue, and so I thought you all did a very good job. And I've gone on for a long time because I tend to filibuster everybody. Professor. Well, I'm Leslie Kendrick. As you may have realized, I'm a bit of an interloper here today. I'm the pinch hitter for a judge who was not able to be with us, so uh, it's my great fortune and honor to get to step in and to uh, be part of the proceedings. I, I want to echo everything that Judge Erickson said about the amazing quality of the briefs and the oral arguments from all four of you today. Um, you would see a lot of legal teams out in practice that involve way more people to produce uh, work of this quality, and it may not be the lead drafter who's actually arguing it, and you all did all of that um, to a really high level just yourselves, and I hope you're really proud of it. Um, I also want to say, having, having seen you here uh, since you were one else, to see you uh, take the podium and to uh, do that beautiful balance between answering the question and making your point and advocating for your client, you all did just a wonderful job on it. So Riley, Sophia, Ethan, and Dev, congratulations to all of you. You all did a wonderful job. I never introduced myself. I am Ralph Erickson, and I'm on the Eighth Circuit, and we are unpredictable and odd. Um, <laughs> Judges <laughs> need no introduction, but I'm, I'm the odd man out here. John. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I thought you all did a great job, both teams. Um, I was just on the bench last week, and you all would have been, on at least one of my days, all of you would have been the best advocate that I would have seen, honestly. I mean, although it was not a great day, honestly. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I thought you all did really well. I mean, I, I would, um, I, I just have a few points, maybe mm -hmm. some minutiae. Can yeah, I? <laughs> that's good. That's actually, I, I'm just not that brave. I mean, I thought you all did a great, I thought for the most part, I think you all did the normal stuff. Um, answering the question, eye contact, that kind of thing. Um, I think there were a few kind of nervous habits sometimes, you know, saying things like, I would argue, I think you said a few times, or, or um, I see your point, or whatever. You just have to kind of, it comes with experience where you just kind of eliminate those kind of throat clearing things and, and, and just kind of get into the answer. Um, generally, I would conclude by 
my argument by asking if there are any questions before I sit down. I mean, just, you know, in our court, there's a tradition where we keep advocates over. Um, not, I, I try not to if I'm presiding, but I'm pretty junior, so I don't preside a lot. Um, but normally, um, you know, yes, you should probably ask for leave, but you know, if your answer is gonna take longer than the time you have left, I'm not sure. I think I would just plow ahead with the answer and then see what happens. Um, but definitely I would ask, you know, if there, and if, if there are no further questions, Your Honor, you know, we would ask that the, that the judgment be affirmed or whatever. Um, I did think um, um, there were a couple of points and I don't, have any specific, but like the advanced, um, I thought, for example, one example, um, I thought there were times when you could maybe have pivoted to another point or at least turned a question around to your to your advantage a little bit um, kind of more quickly. And I think that's just kind of appellate advocacy, like that's the advanced level class. Um, for example, I think it was, Dev got the question about B3 and B4. Those are probably good points for you. I mean, she asked it as kind of a hostile question, but actually, I think you got around to turning it around, but it was a point where, yes, you can embrace B3 and B4. Those involve not the victim's expenses, but outside expenses, and so the concept is, and that was a question that I had asked in the earlier part, and I think one of the other things I would say and this goes, I thought your rebuttal was pretty good. Um, I think that it, a lot of times in moot courts, I think rebuttals and responses don't, aren't as responsive as they should be to what the person says. And it's hard when you're the appellee and you're not as experienced, but a lot of times when I argued cases and I you know, was an appellate advocate for a long time, you know, as the appellee, I have, notes prepared and things I want to say, but I'm also, I have an ear open while the other person's up because I'm going to get up and say, your honor, as you, you know, as you just, you know, pointed out blank or to answer the last question, your honor, that you just asked, um, here's the real answer and why. In other words, try to be engaged with what happened with your opponent. But in rebuttal is obviously the time when you specifically want to get up there and talk a little bit about kind of what happened before, hit the points that you had. I would have dispensed with Crawford in the rebuttal and just gone, look, Your Honor, we win because of these cases that are, have already been decided on our side and they don't have a great response. Um, anyway, that's what I've got. The briefs, I thought, I, I thought the briefs um, were excellent as well. Um, I've got a few comments I wrote in them. If you want the hard copies, I'll give them to you, but um, I'll have to look at them and scrub them for anything that's like, what the heck is this? Um, but anyway, no, um, great job, um, both of you all. I thought both teams did great. There's only one thing I would add, is that um, you suffer from what all law students suffer from, an undue respect for judges, and there is a fine line um, as you're trying to turn back to your argument and trying to pick up where you want to be, that, that you can be more aggressive than you are and probably more aggressive than people tell you you can be. Uh, because uh, judges expect a certain level of assertion, 
right? We don't expect you just to agree with us and then kind of wallow about for two minutes of your very valuable time and then take two minutes to get back to the argument. And you both at both sides, all four of you at some point had that issue going where you kind of, yes, judge, you know, I understand this, yeah, but maybe, and then you finally got to that forceful point. Go straight to that forceful point. You know, it's okay to say, I understand, Your Honor, and then move on. You don't have to, you know, and, and it's kind of good to know the panel because there are some judges who take offense, and that's good. But, but as for myself, I mean, at least on our court, most of our judges, you know, uh, eight out of 11, will let you do that without any trouble. I'm not going to say which three are a little bit thin-skinned. Anything else? Do you have any questions for us? Nobody ever gets to ask federal judges questions, so I always, I always say that, ask that, you know, because you never know what guys are going to tell you if you ask questions. All right, having passed on your opportunity, um, we'll uh, go ahead and, and uh, go on to the, what, what, the reception. reception. Is that the next thing? All right. Thank you. Congratulations.